Hey there, it's JC again, and this is the Sermon Extra coming from Titus chapter 2, 6 to 10, which we looked at this past Sunday night. Uh, we've kind of been in a short, well, a series through Titus, and here in chapter 2 is kind of the second part in looking at Paul's instructions to different demographic groups about how they can not only live in a way that fits the gospel and accords with it, but also live in a way that adorns the gospel, that shows that our gospel identity produces beautiful living, that um, the beauty of a redeemed life would reflect the beauty of the Redeemer. And so we looked at how young men, uh, church leaders, and bond servants or employees can all live in a way that reflects the glory of God before a watching world. We looked at how young men, through displaying the beauty of self-control, adorn the gospel, how church leaders, when they display sound doctrine and life, adorn the gospel, and how employees, when they display the beauty of submission, all adorn the gospel. And two things that I wanted to go into on more depth here. Um, the first was about self-control, and particularly thinking in just fighting sin and seeking to grow in walking out a self-controlled life. We looked at the big picture, how ultimately... Self-control is not a fruit of willpower. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. And so we can't just seek to remove evil desires from our hearts. We have to have a um, what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. That is, we need to learn to walk with the spirit throughout the day such that we see every temptation to sin as not just an opportunity to fall and be ashamed, but an opportunity to actually have victory and enjoy spiritual joy in the Holy Spirit, a fellowship with the Spirit, as we are walking conscious of the Spirit's reality in our lives. That was the big picture. We want um, a spiritual understanding of this life and walk of faith. But in thinking of just some practical thoughts, I want to give four practices to help you guys in um, overcoming sin and walking in freedom. And in thinking of self-control, you know, especially, I think, for men, which the passage was addressed to, is this really often hits in the area of sexual temptation and lusts. And I just want to commend um, four practices, four simple practices for getting started on a road to freedom. And this just doesn't relate, this doesn't only relate to sexual purity and men, but it really relates to most any sin you could apply these four practices to, to start on a road for freedom. But um, it's the fight of sexual sin that's particularly in my mind. So if you are feeling trapped in sin, um, I was reading this morning in Romans 7 how even though we've been freed from sin, um, the sin in our members, it wants to take us captive again. It wants to, us to voluntarily pick up those chains that once held us that Christ has freed us from, but we keep walking back into. So where to start for freedom? So there are two initial practices that get us started and then two practices that help us continue on a road to victory and freedom. So the two initial practices are confession and accountability. Confession and accountability. So first, confession. Confession is a gracious gift of God to us that we actually have someone to confess our sins to who is our advocate and our mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in sin, the first person, the main person we need to confess our sins to is God. 
And we remember what we're told in 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when a conscience is burdened by the weight of sin, you have to know where to go with that. You have to know where to go with your shame. When you're feeling condemnation, you have to go to the throne of grace to unburden those sins, um, trusting Christ's work to be sufficient to pay for them, to know that your sins can be forgiven and to then be able to walk in freedom, not having to carry the weight of sin because Christ already carried it for you. You have to learn the frequent act of confessing your sins to God. But secondly, we're also called to confess our sins to one another. This is what James 5 says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And there's a particular call in scripture not to confess your sins publicly to everybody, but particularly to confess your sins to those you've sinned against. And that can work reconciliation and start a path to freedom. And so in this area of sexual sin, particularly for those who are married, I think it's very important to confess sexual sin to your spouse. In marriage, every sexual sin is a violation of the marriage covenant. It's a defiling of the marriage bed, as we would see in Hebrews 13. And therefore, every sexual sin in marriage is a sin of unfaithfulness to your marriage vows and is thus a sin directly against your spouse. It's, it's a lie to believe that, it's only, that it only hurts us, that it's only about us. No, every sexual sin in marriage definitely affects your marriage, and it's definitely a sin against your spouse in breaking the marriage covenant. And so I believe it is important to confess your sins to your spouse. Some uh, perhaps object that this is too great of a burden for them to bear, and they would rather be ignorant. And if that's your spouse's attitude, I would encourage them to look at that attitude as well. You don't want to walk in a way that is ignorant of sin and turning a blind eye um, because sin grows in the dark. And yes, there may be times where it's wiser to have someone else to confess to outside of the relationship. But I do believe that both parties, a husband and wife, ought to ideally desire to work towards being able to confess their sexual sins to each other. And the grace of confession is freeing because, um, like I just referenced, sin grows fastest and best in the dark when it's not brought into the light. And it's when it's brought into the light that it can start getting exposed and destroyed. Uh, just as, you know, people are saying these days that apparently uh, coronavirus gets uh, easily killed in the light. And so, you know, it's safer to meet in outdoor spaces, what have you. Um, illustratively, when we bring out our sin into the light, to see it in the face of God, in the light of his word, but especially with other people, that can really start to have a weakening effect on sin. The grace of confession. But secondly, there's the grace of accountability. And really, all that accountability is, is an agreement to confess sin on a continual basis. It's an agreement to confess your sins to someone on a continual basis when they come up. And especially as it relates to sexual sin, here's where accountability most often and quickly goes astray. It's when the onus of accountability is put on the person who is struggling with the sin to, um, to say, in a sense, if I'm your accountability partner, hey, if you, um, or no, sorry, 
scratch that. It's where you put the onus on the accountability partner to keep the other person accountable. So if I'm your accountability partner, that it's my job to check in and be like, hey, how have things been going with that lately? And then the problem there is that the response can really easily skirt the subject where it's like, well, you know, it, uh, it's been okay, not, not the best, but you know, I'm, I think I'm on the right track. And it's like, oh, okay, good, good. And it's really easy to brush it over. It's also, um, you're, if you're doing that, you're putting the burden of confession on your accountability partner and saying, well, I'll only need to confess my sin if they ask me about it, or if they ask me directly enough or specifically enough that I can't skirt around it. That is totally not how um, accountability works best. Accountability works best. It works best in a really real way when the onus is on the person struggling to agree to confess their sins to their accountability partner when they occur. That is the best accountability agreement. And again, ideally, I think you should be accountable with your spouse, though I do understand there's situations where that might be too burdensome or troublesome for a season. But I think ideally that's where you want to go. Um, to, to agree with your spouse, when I sin against you in this way, I will tell you. I will not keep it secret from you. I will not hide it from you. I will not allow it to go for weeks or months on end um, to just be a secret thing in my life. There is great freedom when sin is quickly confessed. And so if you are going to be make yourself accountable to an accountability partner, you must agree and take it upon yourself to say, when I mess up, as soon as possible, I will let, confess to you and let you know. And often it takes a while in your mind to work it through when you've fallen into sin. Oh, I can't tell them yet. But as soon as you can get there in your mind, you want to tell your accountability partner of your sin. You want to confess. Because the more quickly sin is confessed, the more quickly you get on the road to recovery, as it were. So the onus must be on you. And so, you know, we, you can apply this in other ways that, you know, when your spouse comes home from work or you see them in the day to just like, hey, by the way, I ate too much today. I, you know, I was getting hungry before dinner and I just went on a binge or, hey, just wanted to confess that I did get angry at the kids today. Um, I let my temper get the better of me or to confess to be like, hey, driving home from work, I looked too long at this uh, tempting site or, hey, I clicked this link that popped up that I know I shouldn't have. You need to learn to confess your sin quickly. And that does, it's like pulling up the weeds quick, quickly before they uh, come and sprout. So those are the two practices to get you started. The grace of confession, but confession in accountability. And then two practices I want to point out that help you on the road. And the two practices are watchfulness and prayer. Uh, this is what Jesus taught his disciples when they're in the garden on the night of his temptation. He said, watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. So watchfulness and prayer. First, watchfulness. Watchfulness is um, the grace whereby you watch yourself and you take minute inventory of what's going on in your heart and mind. It's where you are vigilant, vigilantly watching like a guard at an outpost, um, looking for the first sign of an invading army. Because you know the sooner you spot the army coming, the sooner you see the scout sneaking up, 
the sooner you can get prepared and ready to battle before the army is at your doorstep. That's what watchfulness does, because temptation comes very quickly, and it can overwhelm you very quickly. So you need to learn how to nip sin in the bud before it flowers. So you need to watch, um, to, to know yourself, to know, hey, to study your habits and say, hey, in these situations, I find myself most tempted in this location or at this time of day. And that might be with sexual sin, a computer or phone. It, it might be that um, I know that I'm most prone to over snacking right before I go to bed. You need to know the tendencies of your heart and the things to which you're most prone. And then you also just need to watch the gates of your body, your different senses. You need to watch your eyes that you don't let them linger on things they should not. You need to watch your mind that it doesn't entertain thoughts of sin. You need to watch um, your mouth, what you speak, your feet, where you go. Because the more vigilant you are over your senses to quickly shut down that thought, that tempting thought, as soon as it comes into your mind the better you will do. You need to develop like an early warning system so that you can be prepared to either, say, text an accountability partner to pray for you and check in with you when you're feeling tempted, um, to, you know, to ask your spouse to check in if you're feeling, say, particularly snacky, to say, hey, like, I feel like I just want to eat the whole house, check in with me that I do all right here. And doing this is like having, you know, like a backup camera on a vehicle, you know, when you're backing up. And when you start getting close, you get a couple beeps. It's like, oh, you know, you're getting close. And then when you're saying three feet, it's like alarms going off. And that's what you need to develop with sin, that an awareness of the closeness of the danger at hand and the steps you need to take to reverse course and to rev on out of there like a car backing up too far. So you need to cultivate the grace of watchfulness. And so this is also, it includes feedback loop, a constant re-evaluation of, hey, how am I doing? If I fell into temptation, what was the nature of it? Why did I fall into that? What was I thinking? What lie was I believing? You need to be constantly evaluating yourself because you need to be constantly fighting and aware to keep growing. You can't just be passive in this. So watchfulness and prayer. Prayer is the essential act of humility and dependence. And prayer is a strong countermeasure to relying on your own strength. We know we're constantly tempted to think we can do things like our own willpower and make self-control a fruit of willpower instead of a fruit of the Spirit. And we imbibe the Spirit through prayer. That is a display of our dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we need to recognize that sin is so deceitful, it's so sneaky, that we desperately need the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And our dependence on the Spirit is primarily shown in prayer. That is the barometer of our dependence on the Spirit's power. And so I would just encourage these two, just really this simple practice in prayer, to make it your habit every day to first Go to Christ in prayer, praying like he taught in the Lord's Prayer, forgive me my debts. Because we have debts of sin. So to learn the, the habit of every day going to Christ for forgiveness of sin, praying like that publican, be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. So to first pray to Christ for forgiveness, but secondly, to also learn to pray from the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. The one seeking a self-controlled life needs to make this his constant refrain in prayer. Every day praying, God, today, 
Don't lead me in the paths of temptation. Don't let me wander down those old courses and habits, but lead me away from it. Lead me into light. Lead me into goodness and truth. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from these evil inclinations in my own heart, these evil thoughts in my own mind. Free me from them. Looking to the grace of Christ as Savior, to say, God, you've saved me from the ultimate power of sin, but I want you to keep delivering me from these sins I keep running back to. You need to be praying every day. Persistency in prayer is what Christ constantly calls forth. The parable of the persistent widow, the friend who asks uh, to be asking, seeking, and knocking. So you need watchfulness, but you also need prayer. And so if you can learn to practice confession, accountability, watchfulness, and prayer, I think you'll be well on the road towards walking in victory for sin. And lastly, just overall, the, the one thing I think I've learned that's a commonality over the years that I think is just an essential truth. Um, people will tell you different strategies and helps for what you're struggling with, but the key is to never give up the fight. This life is a fight against sin. It's the fight of faith. And failure comes when you surrender to your lusts and give up. Say it's too hard. It's too much work. I'm just a failure. And we fall deeper and deeper as soon as we stop climbing and fighting. So there is hope. There is freedom in Christ. There are many people who find freedom. Um, it is possible. This is not a, a hopeless pursuit. But never give up the fight because there is hope in Christ. There is power in the spirit. But you need to, the grace of confession and accountability and to practice watchfulness and prayer. So that's what I wanted to say more about um, men cultivating self-control. But the second topic that we looked at that um, I said we would look at in this sermon extra is the issue of slavery in the New Testament. And apologetically, this is, this is an important question because people often condemn the New Testament writers, and the Old Testament for that matter, for having what they would say is a primitive ethical standard that We've progressed so far beyond this in our enlightened Western ideas that the New Testament writers, which is true here, they never explicitly condemn slavery as an institution and call for its abolition. They never explicitly call um, slave masters to free their slaves. And so this is seen as primitive. And so the question is, well, how should we respond to these sorts of arguments? How should we consider how the New Testament deals with uh, the issues of slaves and masters. We did talk a bit about this in the sermon, how um, slavery in the Roman Empire was very broad. And so the, new, the ESV renders the word slave sometimes as servant, sometimes as bond servant, sometimes as slave, depending on the context. And we remembered that we can't assume that what we think of in slavery with American chattel slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, that would apply to only a small portion of the sort of slave relationships that we see in the New Testament. So that's um, important to see on the front end. But um, in a real sense, one thing I think of when I just think of this topic is that we, uh, we don't realize how much these sorts of relationships even permeate our own culture. And so another word people use to work to, that refers to slavery more generally is just unfree labor, or what we would say could be bound service. And there are even scenarios and situations we acknowledge in, all, in our culture where people aren't allotted full freedom of um, either their location or their decisions or actions. Um, we think of criminals who we, um, in a sense, say have lost the right to freedom and we do um, imprison. And that is, a, in a sense, a form of slavery, but one that we culturally acknowledge as acceptable. 
even to be a child, in a sense, to be in this sort of unfree labor. Children uh, don't really have a choice if their parents tell them to do chores. If they're young enough, if they run away from home, they'll be re returned. Um, they're under the authority of their parents pretty absolutely, to a pretty um, high extent. And um, in a sense, you could say that is a form of bound service. Children are bound to serve their parents. Um, also, soldiers. Um, there's a thing called going AWOL. Soldiers are not allowed, they're not free to leave their post um, if they have voluntarily brought themselves into it. But sometimes, even think of this, think of conscription. In conscription, you don't even have a choice to be brought into this form of bound service. And that's actually maybe the closest thing we have to slavery today, though it's not practiced frequently anymore. But we at least acknowledge that this could be a possibly um, ethically, ethically appropriate scenario in the right circumstances, that someone could be against their will conscripted to serve in a difficult, risky, even life-risky um, service. And I say that just to say, not to support any of these things or make a big point, but just to say that let's not think of ourselves so far advanced that we um, give every person perfect and total freedom in every circumstance. It's not true today, and it wasn't true then. And if you look at slavery in the Bible, very often it actually is um, the state of basically being a child. You've become a part of the family. Abraham's slave was, before Isaac, going to be the heir of all his inheritance. And we see this institution strictly regulated in the Old Testament. Um, there wasn't prisoners of war like there are today. There weren't refugee camps. And so the only option in these sorts of scenarios in war, in refugee situations, was in a sense to bring yourself in an enslaved state into a household but you were very much considered part of the family. And ideally, in the regulations of the Old Testament economy, the household is the state in which um, the persons who are bound to serve live. And they were even allowed often, in the year of Jubilee, when all the slaves were to be freed, some could choose to have their an all go through their ear to serve their master forever out of love to them. And so I do think in many ways, in the Bible, we can think of slavery more like voluntary childhood, um, where someone might say, I can't take care of myself, I will come and basically be your child, trusting you to take care of my room and board, but then like a child, I agree to basically do whatever you say. That's largely what we see in the New Testament. And I think this is Paul's idea too of ideally in his mind what a slave relationship should be like. He says in Galatians 4, 1-2, I mean that the heir, so long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So he says in this way, um, a child is no different than a slave because he's under guardians and managers. So Paul's idea of slavery is to be one under guardians and managers. Just like a child is under supervisors, managers, their parents are their guardians, um, school teachers. A slave is, is said to be like a child in that they are under guardians and managers. So it is someone bound to serve another. And so that's why we said um, in the evening that this institution, at its core, reflects a relationship of economic subordination. That it is a relationship of economic authority, just as all of us live under civil authorities, 
There are authorities in the church, authorities, parents over children in the home. In economics, we acknowledge that there are managers, bosses, supervisors who have economic authority to, in a large, to a real extent, determine how we as employees use our time and spend our days. There is a curtailing of our freedoms in relationships of economic authority. And something that really helped me in just thinking of these ideas, and I would commend it to you, you might be able to only find it in like academic journals through a, like a proper library search. But anyways, just to give credit where credit's due, a paper called The Kingdom and Slavery, A Test Case for Social End Ethics by uh, Gunther Hawes, um, H-A-A-S, I found very helpful. And this is kind of what he argued, and um, I will argue here, is that here is the reason why Paul and the New Testament writers never explicitly seek to abolish the institution of slavery in their day. Because at its core, um, the institution of bound service reflects a creation-based structure of economic authority, that of managers and laborers. And Relationships of economic authority are necessary. You can't just get rid of them. And if Paul had tried to just overthrow this whole institution, um, which slaves comprised about 30% of the Roman population, it would have entirely destabilized society economically, caused much suffering, not to mention there were slave revolts in these days that were punished severely with incredible um, bloodthirstiness and just led to the mass murder of slaves by the government. Obviously, um, a very terrible solution. But seeing that Paul recognizes this as a necessary institution, Paul does what he can to purify it and, in a sense, reduce this hard shell of slavery back to the more creation-based principle of just a relationship of economic authority. Because the problem with slavery is not the relationship of economic authority. It's how it's been distorted and perverted through sin. So if you take a good relationship of economic authority, an employee and an employer, slavery turns that relationship into one of domination, one of dehumanization, one of exploitation, and one in which a lot of abuse takes place. It's a, that is, it's a sinful distortion of this creational structure. And Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, he introduces principles that would over time work to purify this institution in order to bring it back into line with God's creational intent. And so um, here, this is an illustration that I think helps here. If you are backpacking uh, on a trail for a few days, you need water. You don't have an option to do without water. But if all the water you're passing is um, polluted water or corrupted water that would make you sick and is undrinkable, the best option is not just to overthrow the water. So just like if the only economic option is these sort of bound service that are corrupt, um, getting rid of it is an option. But Paul, in his teaching, acts like iodine tablets. So what you can do is you can scoop up some of water into, say, your water bottle. You put in an iodine tablet, and after a few hours, the iodine tablet has worked through the whole of the water to purify it to make it drinkable. And that's what Paul's doing in the New Testament. He introduces principles that would, over time, work to purify the institution of slavery to bring it back into its creational intent. And that's why, wherever Christianity has gone throughout history, 
over time, um, deliverance comes to those who are in bondage and oppressed because the principles of the gospel don't allow for slavery to exist in a corrupted, dehumanizing, dominating form. And so what are some of these principles Paul might introduce? I'll just bring up three that I think really affect it. The first principle, the first iodine tablet you could say Paul introduces is the teaching of equality. He teaches this in Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. And if you truly understand how the gospel brings equality and creates brotherhood in the church, how Paul tells Onesimus to treat Philemon like a brother, that you cannot then look down on someone. You can't treat them as less than equal in Christ. And so when you establish equality, you get rid of a lot of the impetus for slavery. You definitely get rid of um, race or ethnic-based slavery because there is perfect equality in the gospel. Secondly, he endorses equity. Paul teaches slave masters to treat their slaves fairly and kindly, gently, to not be harsh with them and to not threaten them. So he introduces this iodine tablet of equity that there is going to be kindness, generosity, and reciprocity, which means that you then lose the ability um, to hold people captive through domination and um, pain and abuse. You lose that whole tool that makes slavery work. There's no more whips um, in, in that sort of scenario. The iodine tablet of equity helps purify the institution. And lastly, just the encouragement of liberty. Um, Paul encourages slaves. He says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can be free, seek your freedom. And he says, if you can be free, use your freedom to serve the Lord. Um, so he says that there's an encouragement to liberty. And even in the, in the Bible, through the year of Jubilee and, and um, the seven-year cycles, there was always a path to freedom for those in bondage. And so this is never intended in Scripture to be a permanent estate, but something which someone either buys their way out of, um, is freed from. And so in encouraging liberty, it counteracts the impetus of keeping families enslaved for generations or allowing children to keep growing up in it. So altogether, the gospel principles of equality, equity, and liberty work to purify the institution of slavery from the inside out, to bring it back into God's creational design of what we might see more as a normal um, employer-employee relationship, one that is voluntary and one there where there's mutual goodwill and um, yeah, abilities to get in and out. So that is how I think we can respond to that call to um, condemn the Bible for its upholding or not abolishing, you could say, of slavery. Um, the key is just that the principles given would work to purify the institution. And so, yeah, that's what I wanted to say really all about that. So we looked at uh, more stuff on self-control, more stuff on slavery, and um, there's lots of resources out there on, on that topic. Um, I'll try to put some for self-control, particularly in the show notes. I want to link to um, a little article I wrote looking at just the different remedies the Puritans applied to the sin of lust. Um, and I, and I want to link another resource in there. So have a great day and um, God bless you on your way.